With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The Athletic. Hello, listeners. Sorry to interrupt your show, but we've got a small favor to ask. We're currently doing a bit of a survey to find out more about you, your podcast listening habits, and the sort of adverts that are most relevant to you. If you feel like helping, please head to surveymonkey.com slash r slash athletic audio UK. That's pretty catchy, so I'll say it one more time. Surveymonkey.com slash r slash athletic audio UK. Thank you. Mysterious curl, I want to play 3-5-2. This is the Totally Football League Show Extra Time in association with Paddy Power. Hello there, I'm Ali Maxwell, joining you once again for a turn through the wonderful EFL and alongside me, George Ellick, of course. George, albeit only through Zoom, I can see that you're standing a little taller, walking on air, the sort of thing that only a derby victory can bring. Oh, yes. Yeah, watching Oxford beat Swindon in the fierce A420 derby last night has certainly made my week much, much the sweeter. Um, You know, tried to rile Sam Parkin over WhatsApp earlier today. Didn't have any of it. Didn't even get a response from the big man. So... Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a good couple of days, and you know after after losing the reverse at Oxford um, a couple of months ago, it was good to get the bragging rights back, and just hoping you know watching it on on iFollow as great as it is to have that service. Um, you know, yesterday was my brother's birthday, and we watched it together over Aww. WhatsApp on iFollow, and the fact that we, it was swindling away on his birthday and we weren't there was just tragic but even even so delighted to get the win and fingers crossed next season all the different derbies in the EFL will have fans in the grounds and many happy returns to my favorite Alec boy um <laughs> right that's out the system now what's coming up on the show today yeah, we've got another brilliant EFL interview. I speak to Aaron Wildig of Morecambe about their brilliant start to the season and a lot of late drama in their games recently, including on in the midweek where they drew to all away at Forest Green. We look back over the midweek and give our Tuffle Setmers, the players and teams of the midweek. And for the weekend previews, well, you know the drill by now. Spot on. Let's get into it. This is the Totally Football League show. Extra time in association with Paddy Power. Pep, what do you think of the risks of players taking part in fantasy football? I I, I think that uh, fantasy football? What is this uh, fantasy football? And Man City win the treble again with an incredible goal for Erling Haaland, who's just signed a 10-year contract with Man City. He said what sealed it was the long, flowing locks of manager Pep Guardiola. Look at him there on the sidelines, his hair cascading down over his shoulders. Uh, uh, Next question. That's one sort of fantasy football, Pep. Paddy Power. 18 plus, become aware of the on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic. This is the Totally Football League show Extra Time with George Ellick and Ali Maxwell. 
Right, now then for the midweek reviews. And last week we introduced the Tuffle Setmers and they are back again, albeit in a slightly truncated form. Ali, run us through the Championship's honourable mentions before we get to Leagues 1 and Leagues 2 because there were only, what, a couple of games? That's right. First time listeners absolutely bamboozled at that word. The Tuffle Setmers, the Totally Football League Show Extra Time Midweek Awards. We're not dishing any out for the Championship because just three games in midweek. Not enough bulk, we reckon, to merit in-depth Tuffle Setmers. But just in case you missed the headlines... On Wednesday night, playoff dwellers Barnsley missed the chance to go level on points with Reading as they could only draw at home with Derby. QPR beat Wickham 1-0 to move into the top half of the championship table. And if that sounds like a regulation win against a team at the very bottom, I can assure you it was anything but QPR fan loft for words tweeting, Christ, I feel like I've just taken up smoking. And Swansea <laughs> came from behind to draw one all with Blackburn Rovers. The Swansea equaliser came from the penalty spot. Yep, I know what you're thinking, but actually it was a nailed on pen, in fairness. And if anything, Swans should have had another. So some of the penalty gods karma there uh, coming back to bite them. One all with Blackburn that game. But let's tackle League One in a little more depth, Georgia. Full slate in the third tier. Let's start with the player of the week. You've selected one who, when I saw the finish that he slotted in on Tuesday night, I made an involuntary noise. Something along the lines of, ooh, yes. Oh, yes, indeed, for Jordan Jones after playing his part in their 2-0 win at Fratton Park. And in the formation that Lee Johnson's playing and the way they were set up against, against Pompey, he's offering both an alternative for Aidan McGeady in terms of, of creative force and also another elite crosser of the ball to put the ball onto Charlie White's head. And that is how the first Sunderland goal came. It was from a set piece. It was from a corner, a beautiful corner whipped in and White unmarked, able to head in just about six yards out from goal. This isn't the first time we've seen Jones do this back on the weekend as well against Rochdale. He probably put in, I would say, not the assist of the season so far, but in terms of a crossed assist. It was the best cross I've seen anyone put in. Um, Charlie White heading home. I actually watched it for the first time with Dean Ashton, who knows a fair bit about scoring goals <laughs> similar to it. And he basically said, wow, I mean, if, if you're a striker on the end of that service, um, <laughs> you're going to struggle not to put the goals away. He's more than just a creative force as well. He scored an excellent goal against Crew a couple of weeks ago. And the second goal midweek as well against Pompey was his, an, another brilliant, brilliant finish from a guy who's clearly got a bit of a wand of a right foot. And that means you know, he is able to play in the formation that Lee Johnson's setting them up in, which is a bit of a 4-2-2-2, weirdly, at Sunderland. And it's a, a front two of White, who is the goal threat, and O'Brien, who is the, you know, the tenacious runner, um, pressing teams high. Then you've got McGeady and Jones sitting behind, and they're basically given a free roll. They're not playing particularly wide. They're coming inside from both of their channels, happy to adopt that that role just in behind that 10 roll, all going around the outside and putting in crosses. And it, it may have seemed at a time of just stopping Aidan McGeady was a good way to stop the supply chain to Charlie White. But as we're seeing now, Jones has that quality from deep, has the ability both to come onto his right foot and shoot or go on the outside and put balls in, in and onto Charlie White's head. I mean, Charlie White is a lucky, lucky boy to be 
able to play the role he's playing at the moment with McGeady on the left and Jones on the right, but it's working really well. And he is going to, I think, if Sunderland do continue this march up the table towards the automatic promotion places, I think Jones is going to have a massive role to play in it. And he was a standout performer and an important result midweek. A lovely little dink, just lifting it over McGillivray. Sunderland, impressive at Fratton Park. They were in with a shout of being team of the week, along with Hull, who beat Posh 3-1 away from home. Bristol Rovers put four past Aki, very much righting the wrongs of the 6-1 defeat that they suffered up at the Wham. But League One team of the week is none of those. It's Wigan Athletic. I want to mark this point of Wigan's season and maybe to to go a little further, maybe to get a little bit dramatic, potentially to mark this point in their history because, and I say this tentatively, it could be the start of something genuinely good for the club. Nothing is confirmed yet. The deal has not gone through, but many reports this week that the Bahrainian Consortium are closing in on a takeover of the club. Now, this club has been in administration since being placed there completely out the blue for most of us on July the 1st of last year. More than eight months now, Wigan have been in administration. This is one of those that we'll have to cover when it's sort of signed, sealed, delivered, I think. Keeping your your eyes peeled on Matt Slater's Twitter timeline and his author page on The Athletic seems like the best bet. But evidently for Wigan to move forward as a club, they need new owners. They need someone to start footing the bills and to rebuild because of what they've been through off the field in the last nine months or so. But on the field as well, this was significant. Heading to Plymouth on Tuesday night and leaving with a 2-0 win, which means it's back-to-back wins for Wigan Athletic. And they moved out of the bottom four, out of those League One relegation places. They were 2-0 up here within half an hour. Callum Lang has been brilliant. It's hard to understand, really, looking back, why he was on loan in the Scottish Premiership in the first half of the season because of the quality that he has, sure, but also because of the fact that Wigan were having to shed their skin. They were having to, to shed players uh, in order to cut the wage bill. And, and Lang, who's come through the youth system at Wigan, it's hard to imagine him being one of the high earners uh, at the start of the season. So not quite sure what the deal was there, but there's no doubt that he's impacting this club um, on the pitch now for Wigan. And he was excellent here. Good play along with Massey to set up Viv Solomon Otterbor, who put them ahead before Curtis Tilt headed home a Tendai Dirichwa cross. 2-0 up, and the analysis of the next hour really depends on your point of view, I suppose. That The official Wigan website called it a stubborn defensive display. Wigan today, the local newspaper, did go as far as to mention that Plymouth hit the woodwork three times. Um, probably somewhere in between. I think it was a stubborn defensive display, but just like the weekend, Plymouth's shooting boots completely evading them, and, and it's uh, back-to-back defeats for them. But focusing on Wigan... There were only two regular outfielders left over from last season's team that did so well in the championship. Lee Evans and Gavin Massey. Both of them have had real injury problems this season, but both of them are now back from injury, played last night and looked like they could have a big impact in the last quarter of the season. The fact of continually having to sell their players and having to add free agents right from the the bargain basement 
bucket, if that's a thing. I think you all know what I mean. As the season has whirled on around them, it's been so tough for Liam Richardson, who stepped in after John Sheridan left. Rotten luck with injuries as well. Wigan have used 36 players this season, which I think sums up what Liam Richardson has had to work with. No solidity whatsoever. But on Wednesday, after back-to-back wins, lifting themselves out of the relegation places the discussion on Wigan social media was around whether achieving survival this year would be the greatest sporting achievement in the club's history and look of course many were pointing to that FA Cup victory in 2013 over Man City the club's high point in their modern history but others were in agreement that based on everything basically going against them for almost 12 months now, a survival this season would probably be number one. For now, they'll just have to settle for a Tuffle Setma. They are our League One team of the week. Uh, League Two as well, George. This was a really lively slate of fixtures. A lot of teams at the top dropping points. But first up, who was the best player of the League Two midweek? Going to give this one to Paul Lewis. I think probably the rightful winner of this award is going I to come so. for the team no no, no it's going to come for the team you're going to talk about in a second ah. um so if that man is listening then uh, you know hopefully he'll understand fairly soon but Paul Lewis um for Chanmere because this was a big win you know for Chanmere they went mm. away to a south end side who were resurgent and they beat them 2-0 and I think we have to go back to last Saturday to understand why not only is this a big result for Chanmere but this was a particularly big performance by Lewis himself Last Saturday couldn't have gone any worse for Tranmere. They were beaten at home 1-0 by Crawley, ending their ridiculous run of form and uh, an unbeaten run as well. And not only that, but all the teams around them picked up wins. You know, you got Morecambe winning, you had Cheltenham winning, uh, Cambridge and Forest Green as well. So their promotion run suddenly looked to be on the rocks. But go to midweek, Tranmere pick up a victory. And all those teams around them failed to win. Mm. Now, the other bad news on Saturday was around James Vaughan, who we don't know how serious it is, but Keith Hill, the manager, came out after the game and said that James Vaughan needs surgery on his knee. Now, we have to assume if it's surgery that James Vaughan will not be playing anytime soon. He might be back before the end of the season or he might even struggle to be back for the beginning of next season. But the goals that Vaughan provides have been so important to this run of Tranmere form. There's absolutely no question about that. 18 goals in the league so far. And they don't really have a player ready-made to replace him. Now, I've had a look to see how they set up yesterday. And from everything that I can tell, even though no Tranmere fans have really spoken about it on social media, Paul Lewis basically just played up front as a lone striker. You know, he's a central (laughs) midfield player. He's not somebody who we associate with playing up top. But within two minutes of the game yesterday, he was inches away from, you know, with a six-yard finish, just couldn't get on the end of a cross, I think, from Feeney. And then just six minutes later, he did score a lovely poacher's goal, first-time finish from a ball into the box, off the underside of the bar and in. So are we talking about a lesser spotted League Two false nine here, George? I think we are, Ali. I think that's exactly what's happened here. So... Not only is the result significant because of, you know, the the context around bouncing back from a, a disappointing defeat, because of the context around also the teams around them dropping points and Chamir reintroducing themselves as title challengers, but also because it's shown that there possibly is life after Vaughan, that Lewis can play this role where he'll still be able to drop in and get on the ball and use his passing range. He's always been a goal threat from midfield. You know, I had a look at his shot mm. stats as well. He had three shots in the game. That's that's nothing new. He often does try his luck, but but it does feel like Keith Hill might have come across a good way to fill that void uh, left by Vaughan. I, I'm, I'm anticipating 
some Tranmere fans telling me that this isn't the case. But I've done all the research. I've looked at the heat map. I've looked at the touch map. I've looked at the chances. And I'm telling you now, Paul, Paul Lewis, the striker, player of the week in midweek in League Two. Hey, I won't argue with you, George. Once you've looked at those heat maps, it's uh, it's undeniable, I think. Our League Two team of the week is Mansfield Town. They beat Cheltenham 3-1, and this was an easy, easy choice for me. Consider the recent form of these two sides. Cheltenham, top of League Two, six wins in their last seven games. Mansfield, 19th in League Two, five defeats in their previous six games. And yet the Stags were right at it. Jordan Barry <laughs> hit the post in the first half hour. Cheltenham had a couple of chances of their own and a goal disallowed. But on balance of play, when they went in at nil-nil, I think Mansfield would have been feeling a little hard done by, to be honest, not to be ahead. Uh, I think they probably deserved it. So you can imagine how they felt five minutes after halftime when they went behind. Sam Smith uh, of Cheltenham scoring to make it 1-0. But the reaction was fantastic. And I think, you know, it does deserve extra praise. It's not hard to imagine that confidence gets a little knocked after five defeats in six. So it's it's even more impressive than it would ordinarily be to score three goals in 10 minutes. An incredible blitz, really, against the league's best defence. Uh, Jordan Barry, is that who you were talking about earlier when you said the probable player of the week in League Two if I hadn't already nicked Mansfield for my team of the week? It was. Well, he was magnificent, George. You've clearly got an eye for a player. <laughs> he was playing actual nine rather than false nine. Um, him and Jamie Reid were combining really well at the top of the pitch for Mansfield. And a, a new player catching my eye, I must say, Jason Law, who is a young player through the youth system at Mansfield. He's just broken into the first team in the last month or so. And he looked like a really canny final third operator. I was a bit confused because I saw the surname Law playing in the final third as a, you know, a smart, creative passing player setting up chances. And I thought we were talking about Nicky Law, who left Exeter for America, I think it was in January. But no, he's been replaced by, there's a new Law in town and he's called Jason. And he was brilliant here for, for Mansfield. Uh, I think, look, if you zoom out a little bit, the context of this win is a really encouraging performance for Mansfield fans. I think we, George, along with... Stags fans might have got a little carried away with the Stag party, as we were calling it in January, that run of five wins in a row. But this will be a reminder that when Mansfield are at their best under Nigel Clough, they are as good as anyone in the division. Cheltenham, the league's leaders, um, brushed aside, you have to say, in the second half. So now for, for Mansfield, it's about finishing strong, making these performances the norm next season. I think any chance of a, a playoff push, sadly, uh, out the question at this stage. The games are just running out, but certainly our team of the week, really impressive um, performance off the back of a poor run. Well done, Nigel Clough, Jordan Barry and co Jason Law, one to watch for Mansfield. And they said there wouldn't be any Cheltenham stag parties. <laughs> Horses. <laughs> please, uh, okay. please, 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 can you keep that horses in? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> there we go, then. That was the midweek action. The Tuffle Setmers are done, but we're not quite done with midweek discussion, though. Up next, George caught up with Morecambe's Aaron Wildig to discuss the Shrimps' draw with Forest Green and so much more. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football League Show Extra Time, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Yeah, as ever on the Totally Football League Show Extra Time, we love getting on some of the managers and players that we often discuss on this podcast. And delighted to be joined today by Morecambe midfielder Aaron Wildig. Aaron, great to have you here and great to be speaking to you at such an amazing time to be kind of following the Morecambe story. You know, 12 games to go of the season, you're fifth in League Two, three points off the top. Obviously, as we all know, the pre-season predictions and bookmakers had Morecambe pegged down as, as relegation candidates, although I must say me and Ali had a different idea of it at the start. I mean, what's it been like this season, given that you've been around the club for so long? Yeah, it's just been different. In my in my years at the club, it's been um, a lot of the time has been spent in the lower half of the table, fighting at that half of the table. So obviously for me it's been it's been a, it's been a nice different because it's it's a different pressure but it's a nicer pressure it's not it's just we're going into every game thinking that we can win every game and uh yeah so far we've put ourselves in a position with 12 games to go where i think i don't think it's there we're there by fluke i think last night if anyone watched that game last night that would have proved it that we more than matched forest green and probably deserved more than just a point on the night so no it's, it's we've put ourselves in a good position and we just got to attack each game as it comes I mean, last night, as you say, you went to Forest Green, you drew the game tool with a 93rd minute equaliser. It's not the first time you've had some late drama in your games recently with that incredible game against Salford as well, where you went into injury time 1-0 down. You ended up uh, winning the game 2-1, even though Salford thought it was 2-all right at the death in that one. What does it say about the squad and the group of players that you've got that, you know, the positive uh, changes you're making to games after the 90th minute? I think it comes back to day one in pre-season. I've, I think I'm on about 10, 11 pre-seasons now since I've been playing football and I've never done one as difficult as the one we did this year. Um, the manager had us on a running track every afternoon. So you did train in the morning and then straight to the running track in the afternoon. And if you didn't finish the runs they wanted you to do, you owed in the runs. You'd have to go back on your own and you wouldn't play a pre-season game until you went back and finished the runs that you owed him to do. So everyone completed the same amount of runs through pre-season. There was no cutting corners. And I think we were there 10 days out of 14 on that running track. And I think that just set us up fitness-wise for the season. And I think that's proved in games. We scored a lot of late goals. There was a Salford one. We scored late goals to Scunthorpe earlier in the season, obviously the other night. And uh, yeah, there's been others as well. And it's just the belief within the squad. And when you, once you start scoring those late goals, I think it only adds to the belief because once that final 10 minutes is coming yesterday, like you, you go back on that Salford game and you think, oh, we've been here before. So... You don't lose belief, even when that board goes up four minutes and whatnot. And we've got fit players and players that don't stop believing. So, yeah, it's good. Let's talk about the goal scorer from last night and a player who's making a bit of a name for himself in League Two in Carlos Mendes Gomez. Trod the familiar path of Atletico Madrid to Chorlton and Didsbury to Morecambe. I don't think many players have done that before, but 12 goals so far this season and a, a really brave and classy header last night just you know, getting there in front of the keeper and managing to divert it goalwards. Well, I mean, you've played with a lot of good young players at Morecambe and previously in your career. How good do you think he could be? Yeah, obviously, he's big talent. Um, I think, obviously, goals, his pass, but it's, it's an all-round game, to be honest, his passing ability. I think 
you know, watched a lot of Morecambe this year, some of his passes that have not actually been an assist, but the second assist kind of some passes like that. And then obviously he's, he's got a lot of good attributes, but defensively as well, he puts in a shift and attitude wise, he's on the training pitch every day. He's never injured. So to our touch wood, but I think he's definitely got a chance. He's got a good head on his shoulders. He's got a good chance to go and have a real good career in the game. Obviously at Morecambe, I don't, I don't want him to really to leave us, but I think obviously come the summer, there it will be a difficult, difficult prospect because it's only natural that when you score 12 goals and realistically it doesn't look like he's going to stop between now and the next 12 games and he'll need some big goals between now and then. So hopefully that'll be more coming League One and then it's a bit more money for the club and that as well. But I think it'll be, uh, it will obviously be a lot of interest there come this summer and he's got, the boy's got a lot of talent. Before we move on from the game last night, I've got to ask you about the celebrations. Not only did the team go fairly nuts in the corner in the 94th minute, but I noticed, Darren, that you in particular were turning around and giving it the big one to some Forest Green defenders. Can you lift the lid on that or does what happens on the pitch? Oh, on the just pitch? a bit of banter on the pitch. Yeah, they were like, um, I don't know, just a bit arrogant and all that throughout the game. And I actually thought we were the better team, especially second half. So it was just a bit of, I thought it was a bit of a smash and grab if they were going to win it 2-1 with their only really att- real attack. So yeah, it's just a bit of banter on the pitch. So that was all. <laughs> I think I can speak for everybody listening, every single football fan. I would love to celebrate a goal like that in professional football. So I can completely see why, where you were coming from. Um, and I'd love to do it as a fan, to be honest, as well at the moment. Um, let's talk about one moment in the season that, that looked like it could derail the season. And that was the departure of somebody I called on this podcast, the League Two, Bruno Fernandes, uh, the other week in Adam Phillips, who, of course, was played a massive part in, in the club last season. This season, it was it was even better with eight goals and six assists in 25 games. I think just the goals and the assists column doesn't really do justice just how good and important a player he was for Morecambe. For him to be recalled from his loan and sent out to Accrington in League One right at the end of the window and then following that, you know, I think it was three games without a win afterwards. What impact did that have on you know, the squad, both mentally and in terms of what you believed you could do and how hard has it been to bounce back from it? Um, Obviously, Philo, the ability, like another player similar to Carlos that over the next few years will, has got the ability to go and play at a lot higher level. His right foot is, I remember going to start my career, I played with people like Peter Whittingham and that at Cardiff who had a wand of a left foot. And I'm, I'm not joking when I say Philo has got the ability to do similar stuff with his right foot. His right foot at times is frightening, but... Um, Obviously, once you lose that player on the final day, yeah, it was a blow. But as soon as you come into training the next day and um, we look around the squad, we've got players that have, have come in and I think Toombs has scored a few goals. I've nicked a few goals since. Um, obviously, from John O'Sullivan, Carlos, we're all, we're all chipping in with goals and stuff. And yeah, we probably have lost that killer ball, for that, that, that ability to play that ball. But we're, we're grinding out goals and assists from different areas of the pitch now and people are stepping up. So yeah, I think we had that initial... Um, little dip in in results once he left but I think if you actually look at it it coincided with us playing five out of six away games on the bounce mm. or some and difficult away games Bolton, Bradford uh, I think went to Stevenage and they, they they hit a very good spell of form where they're difficult to beat so no we've managed to put a, a run of results together now and um, thankfully I don't think we, we're obviously we're going to miss him as a footballer because he's a real real big talent but it hasn't really coincided with our results on the pitch you mentioned pre-season and the and the you know the difficult pre-season you had under Derek Adams. You know, often in football, you look at the jobs that 
that managers have to do when they come in after somebody who's done a great job over a period of time. And, you know, Jim Bentley and Morecambe obviously had an incredible time together and it always felt like it was going to be difficult for whoever came in to maintain this league status, I think, for Morecambe. And not only has Derek Adams done that, but he's got you on the brink of a promotion push up to League One. What's it been like playing under him? And, and you know, what are the secrets to, to getting this incredible tune out of this group of players? Um, yeah, for me, it's, it seems to have worked really well. I think since he's come in, even towards the back end of last season, I managed to chip in with a fair, I think I was like, before the season got cancelled, I think I'd scored a few on the bounce and whatnot. So it just seems to have suited me the way the way he plays the, from midfield, with runners going from midfield. And that seemed to have uh, suited me. But no, uh, I owe a lot to Jim over the years. He's brilliant with me. Um, really, really top guy, top manager. And uh, two different styles, but successful in their own different ways um thankfully this year everything's fallen into place and I think you can see now we've got quite a, a settled side a settled unit and um the beliefs there that look 12 games to go and um I, I fancy us against anyone to be honest yeah yeah I think we do too and um, before we let you go uh you know it's been a, di- a funny season this season without fans being there and it's meant that clubs have obviously tried to find different ways of engaging with their fan base. Now, this week, it's my turn to interview the guest, the guest uh, Ali, and I take it in turns to interview the guest. Um, and he's gutted because he's the biggest fan of the Morecambe YouTube channel that there is going out there, even though he's not even a Morecambe <laughs> fan. He is a fanboy of Max Rushton, who, of course, is, is in charge of the... Of Matt Rushton yeah. is in charge of the, the whole thing. I mean, what's it like being part of this little kind of TV? It's very different for, for League Two YouTube channels to be producing the kind of content that Morecambe are. No, I've got to give him credit. He's he's real good. And to be fair, up until this year, there was so much else behind the scenes at the club as well. But I think he's managed to to get a bit more time to to do that YouTube side of it. And he's passionate about it. And to be fair, all the lads love him. He's he's great around the uh, around the place. Uh, very honest guy. He'll always tell you his opinion and what he thinks, whether you whether you like it or not. But now he's creating some real good content, and I think it comes across well because it's a bit different. It's a bit more relaxed. It's a bit. Um, I think fans relate to it a lot more. In fact, so that's um, no, real good. Yeah, Ali's, you know, obviously doing stuff for the Total Football League show, Sky Sports Quest, but I know that an appearance on the Morecambe YouTube channel would be his dream come true. But thank you very much, Aaron. Hopefully your dreams, well, the the dreams of Morecambe fans come true with a League One season next campaign. We'll all be rooting for you. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. That was George speaking with Aaron Wildig there. He's been excellent on the pitch, excellent on the Morecambe YouTube channel. I mean, it's almost like I'm part of the Morecambe FC tourist board here, the amount that I've spoken about that YouTube channel. But I don't care. Honestly, it's so good. And if you'd said to me, George, this week, I would spend six minutes of my life watching a YouTube video entitled Late Stage Ankle Rehab with Nat Knight Percival, I would have called you crazy. But I got a lot out of it. He's the first professional footballer I've ever seen use I digress with such sophistication and style, and I really liked it. So as I've said many times this week, if you like getting to know uh, the inner workings of an EFL football team, Morecambe's video content is brilliant. But I don't want to just focus on that. I think the whole Morecambe story, if that's the right word, situation at the moment is really fun for us to cover and great to watch. There's a lot to like about it. I, I was thinking while you were talking to Aaron, it's it's kind of the perfect storm, really. I don't think there's necessarily one part of Morecambe Football Club that has suddenly improved. It's more a case of good management of the club, 
in all aspects, really. Clearly, the players are buying into what Derek Adams is doing for them. Um, Aaron told us what he did in pre-season and how they felt that set them up well for what's been such an intense schedule. Clearly, he's moulded them into a, a proper winning machine in League Two, which Morecambe haven't been for the last few years. And that's without any money being splashed, just smart, savvy recruitment and getting the, ble- the best out of the players at his disposal. But I think off the field as well, it was a... It was a strange few years for Morecambe. There were there was a bit of strange going. There, there was some strange goings on at boardroom level, at least from the outside looking in. But now you have to say they look like they're really in a good position. A few weeks ago on their website, they wrote a boardroom update. The subtitle was "Goodbye, Little Old Morecambe: A New Era," and I think that really just sums up the atmosphere around the place. Derek Adams at the heart of it. What an appointment he was to replace club legend Jim Bentley. But I think certainly the board of directors, um, you know, this statement came from co-chairman Rod Taylor and directors Charlie Appleyard and James Wakefield. It's impressive stuff. It's impressive stuff. They're clearly setting the foundations uh, for success off the field. And as we know, that is crucial for what happens on it, even if we prefer to focus on managers, tactics, players, etc. So the perfect storm, lots of good things and great to have got a Morgan player on the podcast. Um, if it wasn't Aaron, I would have liked it to be Carlos Mendes Gomez because what a diamond he is. And I, I agree with Aaron that it will be difficult for them to keep hold of him for next season. But next up, it's time to look ahead to the immediate future. The weekend previews, plenty to look forward to. That's up next. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This is the Totally Football League Show Extra Time, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Yes, thank goodness the weekend is upon us and that means it's time for our previews on the games that you should be watching in the EFL, starting as ever in the Championship. George, I chose Borough versus Stoke to talk about here. Um, There are some intriguing games, I think, across the whole league, but for this one, I just think you've got at this stage of the season with, what is there, 11 games to go, I think, in the Championship. You've got Middlesbrough in ninth on 50 points, Stoke travelling to Borough on 10th on 48 points, and with the playoffs seven and nine points away from these two respectively, at this stage, it feels a little bit like, you know, if you lose this game, you can forget a playoff push. If you win this game, you'll definitely be able to talk yourself into to sort of retaining hope for another week at the very least. So, you know, you've taken a look at Borough, the home side ahead of this one. And I'm interested to know how you think they're shaping up and whether there's any chance of a playoff push if they can get past Stoke this weekend. Yeah, I feel like I'm on the receiving end of a power grab there, Ali, you saying that you chose all the fixtures. But I'll, I'll get to work on what I've done my research on with Barra anyway. Power grabs have no place in football. The first question here with Middlesbrough in their current guise is whether or not Neil Warnock has calmed down. Has he got over the disappointment of Saturday, the, the late defeat, the late penalty that saw Swansea beat them 2-1 after they thought they had grabbed a point? Because if he hasn't, I think Stoke are going to be in for a fairly difficult game. I mean, before we, we get into what we can expect from Middlesbrough themselves on the pitch, it's interesting to me 
to see the way that Neil Warnock spoke after the game because he, more and more, I'm noticing this season, he is somebody who basically uses his media presence as a massive way of looking to influence his players. We've seen it so many times. You know, you think back to his first game uh, of the season against Watford, a game which, yeah, they were fairly unlucky to lose. (laughs) Anybody listening to just Neil Warnock's interview after that game would have thought that they had won the XG battle about 17-0 and had ended up losing it it 1-0. He was so effusive with his praise. Mm. So I'm just wondering if a little part of Neil Warnock knows that on the back of a difficult defeat coming towards the crunch time of a season, I wonder if Neil Warnock knows what he's doing and it's a bit of a rallying cry. It's a bit of an attempt to get the Borough players feeling like there's an injustice going on and therefore looking for a reaction. I mean, the the form itself isn't particularly strong. It's pretty inconsistent. They had that bizarre 3-1 defeat against Bristol City, uh, a Bristol City side who at the time couldn't really do much right. And of course, the loss against Swansea on the weekend. But littered in between these was a very, very good win against Reading, a very, very good win against the Coventry side who are playing very well at the time that they played each other. Personnel is a concern. Yannick Balassi and Duncan, Duncan Watmore started as a front two against Swansea. You know, two players who we don't really associate as being strikers, who don't really have particularly good goal records. Watmore was taken off at half-time in that game. British Ombolonga and, uh, and Tavernier were both... Uh, were both not included in the squad at all. And when Neil Warnock was asked after the game about all of these different concerns, his answer was fairly puzzling. He said, Brit wasn't up to scratch on Friday, so I said we'll go with what we've got. A bit like Duncan, just not quite there. That's why I thought I'd be careful with Duncan. I asked the doc to have a good look at him. He just wasn't at the races. Didn't look. He just didn't look healthy. So, I mean, I have no idea what's wrong with British Ombolonga and uh, and Duncan Watmore. I have no idea if they've got injuries or if Neil Warnock's just looking at them and thinking they don't look particularly well and therefore not playing them. But he did say that the Tavernier should be back for this game on the weekend. Dyke still came off injured during the Swansea game and was replaced with, with Jed Spence, so we can expect him to be out. Effectively, Borough are struggling for personnel, but given the evasive nature maybe of Neil Warnock's post-match press conference, for all we know, a Sombolonga, Watmore, Dyke Steele, Tavernier, they could all be fit and ready to go on the weekend or they could all be out. So it's going to be interesting to see how, how the team looks when it does be released. The one player I would say who did make an impact against Swansea was uh, Nathaniel Mendes-Lang, who came in on a free transfer in January. We haven't seen too much of him so far, but he played a big part in getting them back into that game and could be used from the start here. So yeah, it's a hard one for me to preview because I have no idea how they're going to line up on the day. Um, but I have a feeling no matter who the personnel is, Neil Warnock will have them, as you mentioned, because it's such a big game, because a defeat could spell the end of any promotion hopes, I have a feeling they'll come out fighting. Interestingly, after his game, after this reverse fixture early on in the season, that was another fantastic post-match Neil Warnock rant where he complained about the state of the dressing rooms that Stoke had put on for Borough. Now, obviously, in COVID times, a lot of teams can't use their dressing rooms for I guess distancing reasons and so teams have had to be quite inventive uh, with where they allow the opposition to change pre-game and Warnock was absolutely fuming with what Stoke put out for them. The facilities that we've got changing was an absolute disgrace today. I want to put animals in it. I think it's fair to say at that point though George both teams were in better nick in a footballing sense. At, At separate times I think both sets of fans would have felt much higher levels of confidence that they'd be in the top six than they would do now. And I think for Stoke, it's it's both basic analysis, but also 
very, very important to mention that all season, Stoke have been what we would call a pretty low margin side. That is a team that doesn't concede a ton of chances, a team that doesn't create a ton of chances, a team whose games are often draws. And if not, they tend to fall either side by one goal. And early on this season, Stoke had one of the league's best attacking players and finishers, more specifically, in Tyrese Campbell. He got six goals and seven assists in the first 16 games of the season. He still has the highest goals and assists per 90 um, numbers in the league this season, just above Ivan Tony. So he was playing out of his mind, basically. And the moment he got injured, George, they were 1-0 up against Cardiff. It was a Tuesday night, about 50 minutes gone. Tyrese Campbell had got the assist for an own goal uh, and Stoke were leading. If they'd seen that out and won that game, they'd have been on 31 points from 17 games. They would have been in second place in the table a quarter of the way through the campaign. Campbell got injured, a bad injury, which sees him miss the whole campaign. Sam Vokes was subbed on for Tyrese Campbell. Five minutes later, Vokes missed a penalty that would have put Stoke 2-0 up. And instead, they managed to lose that game 2-1. And since then, they've only got 20 points from 19 games, which is the 17th best record in that time. So, of course, there's more at, at play here. And I'm sure Stoke fans are not too fussed to talk about it all the time, but they know the quality of Tyrese Campbell. And I honestly think that's the crucial analysis. That's the crucial context for what's happened to Stoke's season, really. They have dropped off a little defensively and they are clearly not scoring as many goals as when Campbell was in the side. They've been too reliant on crossing for their attacking threat. And sometimes it works because they've got, Stephen Fletcher up top and they've got Nick Powell in a number 10 role, but he's scored a lot of headed goals and he's very, you know, for his position, especially Powell is a real threat in the air. But often that crossing threat can be kind of easily quashed by a defence that's well-structured and some tall centre-backs who know what they're doing in the air. Now, my gut and instinct is that Burrow will be quite comfortable in that regard. So Stoke might need something else here. But this game to me just screams low margin, nil-nil or one-nil either way. Which way it does fall could be quite significant if the team that wins ends up getting some confidence. But these are two teams that, for me, are more interesting to think about what sort of shape they might be in next season than really feeling they've got any chance of making the playoffs. But maybe, maybe one of them will prove us wrong this weekend. As for Paddy Power, they think that Middlesbrough are the likely winners. 23-20 to 20 here. So not strong favourites, but Stoke at 5-2 to two the away side uh, and 2-1 to one the draw. That 2-1 to one draw price is, is uh, that's about as short as you're going to get for a draw. So evidently they're in some form of agreement that this could well be a low margin game and could easily, easily end 0-0. But George, if we maybe shouldn't expect fireworks at the Riverside, could we see some at the Memorial Ground? Let's talk Bristol Rovers against Wimbledon in League One this weekend. We've got two new-ish managers and two sides who are certainly still very much within this crazy, tense League One relegation scrap. But Bristol Rovers head into this with plenty of confidence after a midweek thumping of Accrington. Yeah, exactly. Uh, plenty of confidence, as you say. And... Yeah, there are signs that Joey Barton is improving Bristol Rovers. You know, he's had two of these games already against relegation rivals and they have lost both of them against Wigan and Burton. So it's important to bring the level of performance we've seen in the two wins against Shrewsbury and against Accrington into this game. He's been he's been tinkering a lot with his side. I mean, I know every 
every single coach and manager in, in the country at the moment is rotating pretty heavily because of the 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 schedule and what we're seeing. But except for playing with a back three, we're seeing a lot of moves in terms of personnel and in terms of formations from Joey Barton. But interesting to note that both the Accrington midweek game and the win against Shrewsbury saw him play more of a 3-4-2-1 rather than a 3-4-3. So hopefully, I think Bristol Rovers fans will hope that's what we're going to see going forward because it does bring out the best in them. You look at the result in midweek against Accrington, the 4-1 win that you talk about. If you look at the players who scored in that game, you've got both of the two players giving width in the midfield four. Leahy on the left-hand side opened the scoring and then Robman on the right got the second with a beautiful, beautiful goal. Mm. And then sitting in behind the striker, who is Jonah Ayunga, you have the two players, Nicholson and Westbrook, who are able to just give it a little bit more freedom rather than being pegged out on out on the wing, as has been the case in the 3-4-3 we've seen previously employed by Barton. And no surprise that playing off a target man like uh, a younger, both Nicholson and Westbrook were able to impact the game more effectively than they had been previously. And it comes back to a younger, who I spoke about on this podcast a few weeks ago before Joey Barton was appointed uh, as manager. And surprisingly, given the impact that he made, this was the first start that Ayunga had made under Barton. And he just looks like a, a far better option to be playing either in a 3-4-3 as the lone striker or heading the line here in this uh, in this 3-4-2-1. Because of his physical presence, because of his his agility on the ball, he nearly scored a beautiful goal um, to make it 3-0 here, driving forward with the ball from deep and shooting and hitting the left-hand post. It would have been an absolute screamer. He just looks like a, a better player than Hanlon, who I think needs to be played in a, in a two-man um, strike force, really. He doesn't have that physical presence. He's not particularly prolific either. And I th- it just looked to me like the players sitting in behind, Nicholson, Westbrook, Leahy and Robman, were able to flourish a bit more by having somebody, you know, effectively a target man to play off with McCormick and Upson sitting in the midfield too. So if Barton, I mean, this was, was clearly their best performance so far. They were good value for their win against Accrington. They looked to, to play very, very quickly from, from back to front, looking to get the ball forward early, not keeping possession for possession's sake, and then being pretty disruptive off the ball, looking to stop Accrington from playing, doing a really good job cutting off the supply line to to Charles, um, to Dion Charles up, up front. And uh, yeah, I think... It's one of those classic kind of cliches where if Bristol Rovers maintain this level of performance that we saw against Accrington, I don't think they will be down towards the bottom of League One come the end of the season. They have Mm. plenty more time to put this right in terms of personnel, the players I've spoken about. They have the calibre to get them out of this mess. And maybe we'll see now some, just a level of stability at Bristol Rovers under Joey Barton if he decides to stick with what he put out in midweek. That classic cliche, George, you're spot on. Um, here's one for you. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a cliche because because I say it so much. Right, yeah. Um, here's one for you. Mark Robinson's Wimbledon side on the weekend went up to Blackpool, 1-0 down for a long period and then a smash and grab. There's your cliche, Claxon. Uh, Ollie <laughs> Palmer sort of, it was a remarkable goal really, kind of diverted someone else's shot with the outside of his foot right into the top corner. It looked amazing. And do you know what? That one all draw at Blackpool, I bet there are a lot of people who thought that is a robbery, that you know Blackpool probably the better side and Wimbledon lucky to snatch a point from it. But Sean McGinley, who's an EFL writer who follows Blackpool specifically quite closely, he tweeted us on Sunday to say, Wimbledon are completely changing their style of play and looked great on the ball throughout. Worked well to shut down Stewart's midfield influence. So I was feeling quite positive off the back of that 
supposedly strong performance up at Blackpool. But Tuesday night, 1-0 defeat to Burton Albion. And this was the game to avoid on Tuesday night. Burton had four shots. Wimbledon had two shots. That is six shots total in presumably circa 96, between 96 and 100 minutes of football. I mean, that is astonishingly um, low margin, as I would say, which is being kind. And look, the, the, the issue for Wimbledon is... They can't get anything going in an attacking sense at the moment. And they're not the only team in the EFL. I, I, I laugh a little bit about a game with so few shots, but there's a lot of teams at the moment who, thanks to the schedule really, are just exhausted. And it's impacting teams' creativity. I think it's impacting their both their imagination in the final third, but also what these players are physically able to do. And if you look at the fact that up top for Wimbledon, you've got Joe Piggott, of course, who works so hard for the team. He's played the most minutes for Wimbledon this season in the league. And Ryan Longman as well, who's been a foil for him all season on loan from Brighton. He is the one with the second most minutes. And outside of those two, it's tough to look at someone and think they guarantee goal output, whether it's goals uh, or assists necessarily. So I'm a little concerned for Wimbledon that their attacking depth is letting them down a bit and that they're just a little bit exhausted. But Tuesday night, they played a fellow bottom seven team, but Burton's form is so good now. I think it's 10 wins in 12, isn't it? That I think we can almost say that they are no longer in this group of seven. I'll keep them in it for the moment, but check out the the fixtures that Wimbledon have going forward. This, I think, is uh, to an extent we will know Wimbledon's fate by the end of March. They play Bristol Rovers, clearly, this weekend. That's what we're previewing here. Rovers are three points above them in the league. Then they play Wigan next midweek. Wigan are three points above them in the league. Then they have Charlton in eighth at home. And then two more home games. Rochdale, who are two points below them, and Northampton, who are two points above them. So it's just an intense period for Wimbledon. I'm a, I'm slightly torn between thinking the performances are improving under Mark Robinson and our belief that he seems to know what he's doing, but also this concern that maybe they've run out of steam a little bit at the top of the pitch. I hope I'm proven wrong this weekend. They might have to be at their best based on what you've said about some of those Bristol Rovers performances under Joey Barton. Perhaps unsupply, unsurprisingly, Bristol Rovers are favourites for this one with Paddy Power. 23-20 to 20 to win the game. The draw, 23-10. to 10, And Wimbledon, 21-10 to 10 to win the match. I think previewing the League 2 fixture, George, it was obvious where we needed to go. League 2's newest manager, because at Oldham it was Kuehl out, wasn't it? Curl in. Mysterious Curl, as we prefer to call him. He's the new Oldham manager. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, what can we expect from Keith Curl uh, at Oldham? Probably 3-5-2, or if not 3-5-2, then probably 3-4-3, or some kind of three-at-the-back, attritional, fair, and bit of a snorefest. Or am I doing him a bit of a disservice? Because we have to remember, and I often can't really believe it myself, that Keith Curl oversaw one of the greatest ever playoff campaigns any EFL manager has ever overseen. The level of performance from Northampton over the course of the League 2 playoffs last season was quite incredible. The way that they blitzed both Cheltenham and Exeter in the semi-final and then the final was, not only was it so detached from their previous performances so far that season, but it was just an incredible measure of Keith Curl to lift a, a group of players and get them well drilled in a in a you know a very very direct way of playing but pre- completely prevent preventing the opposition from playing and in terms of man management as well to get them to to do what they did it was completely remarkable 
but it is the exception. You know, Keith Curl, that was his first promotion of his managerial career that dates back quite a long way now. Uh, Northampton fans at the time when the season was curtailed in March, about this time last year, quite a big majority of them wanted Keith Curl to no longer be the manager of the club. They were very much on the cusp of the playoffs on a points-per-game basis, which meant they were able to, to get their promotion. And then you look at what's happened over the summer and early in League One. It does feel like Keith Curl's promotion with Northampton was thanks to three or effectively two very, very good performances given the um, you know what happened in the first leg of the playoff semi as well. So... It's, it's interesting here noting Oldham fans on social media, quite a few of them saying, right, OK, we've brought in a guy here who has achieved a promotion out of this league. And that is true. But you look at the squad that they've got and you look at the way that Harry Kuehl has tried to drill his side of playing in Oldham. And, and for what it's worth, I think Kuehl has been very hard, harshly treated by being sacked, given that they're 11 points off relegation. And I think most people who follow League Two would have said at the beginning of the season that that would be a, a job pretty well done, despite a, a run of four or five bad results. But they play a variation of four at the back formations. So to start with, Keith Cull, unless he's going to completely change his ways, which he might do, is going to have to retrain this group of players in order to play a totally different system from back to front. You look at their two key players this season, in my opinion, I would say Conor McElhaney and, and Dylan Bahambula have been the two best players. Where do they fit into this team? They are certainly not wing-backs. They are, they are wingers, out-and-out wingers, who carry the ball through uh, into the final third and are given license to have some creative freedom. So in a way, I, I can't even necessarily blame Curl for, for any initial bad performances because he's got such a big job on his hand in order to impart his footballing philosophy onto this squad of players who don't seem to be built for what he wants to do. So maybe we will see him revert. Maybe we'll see him revert to a, to a different formation. But um, I think there's been some revisionism over the job that Keith Carl has done. Although, as I said, he deserves immense credit, total and utter immense credit for, for what he did in that playoff campaign. I'm guessing the owner will hope that that will be uh, a consistent level of performance. But I don't personally see how, you know, replacing Kuehl uh, with Curl is necessarily an upgrade. Uh, they have fairly similar sounding surnames and that's about it. So um, that's my take on Oldham. I'm going to be really interested to see what team he puts out and in what system to see if it works. Me too. Me too. They're up against Cambridge United, who still very much in the top three, but just slipped a little bit in the last week or so. They they fell off the top, didn't they, this time last week when they lost to Scunthorpe. And I'm just interested in whether Cambridge can stay the course here and make automatic promotion. If you look at their last eight games, there's a real discrepancy between their performances and some of the results. So um, eight games ago, 4-1 defeat to Salford, poor performance, a lot of individual errors, very uncharacteristic. And in fairness, that hasn't really blighted them. Then they drew nil all with Southend, and that was a very poor performance. They beat Mansfield 3-0, good performance and took their chances, crucially. They lost to Cheltenham, 1-0 defeat in a game where they actually played pretty well, but left with nothing. Then they beat Vale 1-0. This was a real poor performance and they needed a late rocket from Liam O'Neill to win it. They followed that up by losing 1-0 to Scunny. Actually dominated that game, but conspired to lose it. And then they beat Walsall 1-0 last weekend. Another poor performance, another late rocket, this time from Mullen, to win the game. And in midweek, completely played off the park by Bolton in what was a 2-1 defeat. But consensus was Bolton much, much better 
than Cambridge. So it's a bit of a weird one. The three times I reckon they've played well in the last eight, they've lost two of them. And in <laughs> that time, they've had five quite iffy performances, which have included two late wins with long-range strikes. It is only 10 points total from eight games, and that's not going to do it for them. They have to pick up from here, ideally starting this weekend. I am concerned about the performances. And then I thought to myself, you know what? I'm only looking at this through the prism of Cambridge having been top of the table and therefore I'm holding them to the highest possible standards, the standards that I would expect a team to win the league or win automatic promotion with. But I think it is just worth remembering Cambridge are massively overperforming expectations from pre-season. And if they were to drop out of the top three from this point and head into the playoffs... I would hate to see that prompt a lot of angst from the fan base. It does happen quite a lot. When a team overperforms expectations, they then become the expectations. And it can work against a manager because they almost pay for the job that they've done, the good job that they've done further down the line. Mark Bonner, in fairness, he's very honest about his team's performances. I like that. He doesn't. He certainly doesn't try and pull the wool over anyone's eyes. He will very much accept when they haven't played well. He will talk about the game in a very measured way. And I like the way he carries himself and talks about his team, win or lose. But having said that, you know, Cambridge fans will have got excited when they hit the top. They've every reason to love this squad of players, to love this manager for taking them there in the first place. And I'd love to see a properly dominant performance and a statement win this weekend. From what you've said, I mean, there's a lot up in the air when it comes to mysterious curls, Oldham Athletics. So maybe this is the one where Cambridge can just knuckle down, put together a proper performance from back to front and get the win. Uh, Paddy Power certainly think they are the more likely winners, 23 to 20 Cambridge as they travel to Oldham with Oldham Athletic 21 to 10 and the draw 23 to 20. That's the game that we're going to have our eye on in League Two this weekend. And that's the show for this week. Thank you so much to Morecambe and to Aaron Wildig for joining us this week. We hope you get plenty of YouTube subscribers in return. Matt Davis-Adams will be back on Monday with special guest Ross Embleton, recently departed Leighton Orient head coach. And we'll be back again, of course, next Thursday. But for now, from George and myself, goodbye. You've been listening to the Totally Football League show Extra Time part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and by following at the Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football League Show is a Money Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. Finding it difficult to get off to sleep? Well, you are not alone. After a long day of zoom, doom, and gloom, it's hard to relax and just drop off. Maybe you need a bedtime story. I know, there's a lot of them out there. They ask you to imagine that you're laying on a lily of contentedness, drifting upon a lake of calm, holding hands with the otter of placidity. Our one isn't like that. It's a football bedtime story, and it sounds like this. When Brian Clough arrived at Nottingham Forest in January 1975, they were a mediocre provincial club whose most recent success was winning the FA Cup in 1959. But they were 13th in the old second division now. Clough, too, was damaged goods. 
So give it a go tonight. Subscribe to Football Bedtime Stories on your favourite podcast provider now. The Athletic.